Welcome, welcome to the Night Watchman Cricketing Podcast, a podcast for the cricketing connoisseur. A cricketing podcast that looks specifically at the ongoings of the pro-tier cricketing team, both home and abroad. In today's episode, we're looking directly ahead to the Indian tour coming up, the three T20 uh, internationals, ODIs, as well as the three test match series coming up. We're going to hear from pro-tiers Cajiso Rabada, Quinton de Kock, batting coach for the T20 component of the tour, Lance Klusner, and also team director Enoch Enkwe. Ken Borland's going to be filling us in on what we can learn, what we can think about going into this test series, a team very much in transition. We're also going to start with a consideration of the four players who are not going to be there this time around in Dale Stain, Hashim Amla, JP Dumini and Imran Tahir, all of whom have retired from the test component of the Proteus setup. We hope you enjoy this episode of the Night Watchman Cricketing Podcast. Apologies in advance for some of the Skype uh, connection during the course of this interview. At times it drops in and out. Hopefully the content will carry it through and keep you interested. Uh, we'll do our best to make sure that the next uh, episode is a lot more clear and consistent in the quality. So it's a Sunday evening. I'm back on the line with Ken Borland up in Johannesburg. Ken, how are you keeping? Yeah, all well, good. Thanks, Pete. Thank you very much. Great to be back. It's great to, great to speak to you, and it's been a busy week for you this week, no doubt, with the Rugby World Cup team having departed and the announcements by Cricket South Africa and so forth. All you must have been very, very busy in press conferences one after the other. Yeah, well, apart from the rugby, of course, the Proteas have been preparing for their Indian tour up on the high top. They, they left on Friday, so press conferences with them, and Cricket South Africa had their AGM at the weekend, so yeah, still a lot going on. One of the big headlines, of course, from the, uh, the Cricket South Africa board meeting yesterday, a loss of 200 million rand during the course of the last financial year. Yeah, obviously not not good news. Um, almost more concerning because uh, Cricket South Africa have always sort of run their budgets on a four-year cycle just because uh, on the varying strengths of, of the tours that you're involved in. Um, if you have tours uh, featuring India, Australia, England, uh, you know, those are the big money spinners. Sure. For cricket, South Africa, the likes of Pakistan, Sri Lanka, New Zealand, you know, those, those don't really earn, don't really put a lot of money into the coffers. And uh, so that's why they tend to look at four-year cycles, how they've done over the four years as a whole. And uh, over the last four years, Cricket South Africa have just broken even, uh, which is not great, really, considering, you know, that we have had a lot of big tours during that period. I guess what we're going to have to hope for then, Ken, is a bumper uh, come this uh, England tour, this incoming tour, and then obviously the Australians next year, the ODIs and so forth. Hopefully we can replenish some of the coffers there and the Mzanzi Super League uh, is a bit more of a commercial success this year. Well, the Mzanzi Super League is not going to make money. Basically, President Chris Nenzani admitted that uh, he used words like unrealistic, irresponsible, very presumptuous to expect the Mzanzi Super League uh, to make money this year. Uh, he said they're hoping that uh, at worst in year five or six of the Mzanzi Super League, it will actually turn a profit. Well, that is interesting. I mean, so then we are wholly dependent then on the sponsorship of the team, I guess, uh, or the teams, and the, as I said, this incoming tour with England. At the moment, in South Africa, there's not a whole lot, of, whole lot of sponsor confidence in them, especially at domestic level. All their, all their domestic competitions are basically sponsorless. There are no naming rights sponsors anymore. People like Momentum have pulled out. It's really tough times ahead for Cricket South Africa. And 
Look, they do have uh, good reserves in, in the bank still, according to what they presented at the AGM yesterday. Uh, they still have it's uh, 1.18 billion rand in assets, of which 850 million rand is cash reserves. And uh, but you know, if you're losing 200 million rand a year, that's four years, and your your cash reserves are gone. So it is a very worrying situation, and. Uh, it does seem that they're on a bit of a slippery slope at the moment. Well, let's watch that space carefully, Ken. Uh, I guess if we're talking about assets, assets that we unfortunately can no longer uh, rely on or put on our books, are four of our finest cricketers that we've seen over the, the last decade or so. We saw at the end of the World Cup both Dale Steyn and Hashim Amla called time on their uh, test careers. We've also seen Imran Tahir and JP Dumini in the last few months call time on their careers. Now, here we are facing the... Uh, overseas to India, uh, without four of our uh, finest, four of our most uh, rounded and highest performing uh, proteas as we head over into India. Let's look at Dale Stein first, Ken, uh, what a magnificent cricketer, one of the greatest uh, fast bowlers of all time. And you know, your thoughts on, on, on Dale's uh, calling time on his career? Yeah, absolutely. Now, Dale, his record is just absolutely incredible, uh, especially in terms of strike rate. That's where he is just about better than any other fast bowler that's that's ever been. You know, you've got to go back to people who played. So was you know, it was in background? Well, no, he's better even 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 <clears> though <throat> in terms of strike rate, you're going back to guys in the early 20th century or even the 19th century for better strike rates than Dale Stan. He is certainly up there with the greatest of fast bowlers that have ever played the game. Phenomenal bowler, incredibly skillful, and you know, blessed with. The ability to move the ball at high pace, which is just priceless. I mean, any any batsman, any quality of batsman is going to struggle against that. Just very sad that uh, we're no longer going to see him at test level. He is still available for white ball cricket for South Africa, but personally, I, I, I think he's a better test bowler now than a, than a white ball bowler. He had, seems to have struggled a little bit with the with the skills that have been required in white ball cricket uh, lately. You know, he's, he's not the greatest at the death anymore. So it's going to be interesting to see how much white ball cricket he still plays for South Africa. You know, obviously, test cricket, five days, his body just can't handle it anymore. That's the problem. So he, he has to limit himself now in, in terms of workloads, which is sad. But, uh, you know, fortunately, we, we will still see get to see him in action for, for a couple more years at least. Uh, albeit in limited overs cricket. I mean, I guess, I guess the, the challenge was that I mean, he went for so many seasons, if I recall correctly, without any injuries, and then once one started, it seemed like it was an an, an endless catalogue of challenges that he faced, and we've just never really seen the best of it. In fact, at times, with the greatest respect to a champion who kept coming back and really trying to get back to his match fitness, almost became a liability towards the end when he, you, know, you couldn't even be assured that he'd get through a test match. Yeah, it, it was strange the way it happened that, uh, as you say, he was remarkably injury-free for 10 years, incredibly fit. You know, he's, a, he's a very athletic guy, so um, and sure. a, had a very good action. So perhaps not that surprising, and uh, you know he, he works hard on his conditioning, but uh, just that freak injury with the shoulder, uh, you know, breaking yeah. a, bone, yeah. a bone in his shoulder, tiny little bone which which hardly anyone has ever broken before in sports. So he, he's a bit of a, a medical test case. He admits that he perhaps came back too early the first time, and uh, that has then caused problems down the line. Look, he then the misfortune his first test back against India. A couple of seasons ago, Newlands, just Newlands was trod, trod awkwardly. Yeah, at, at Newlands, stepped awkwardly in a in a foothold and uh, did the ligaments in his heel. So 
totally unrelated to his shoulder, but yeah, uh, just yeah, bad luck. Yeah. I think, you know, Father Time is catching it, it up was, with him. It was perhaps a message that Father Time was saying, which is such a sadness, but I mean, it's like, what a phenomenal champion. Absolutely. And, uh, you know, just uh, he's one of the few fast bowlers to really have succeeded in the subcontinent. Uh, he's got a fantastic record there, which is the subcontinent has been the graveyard of many fine fast bowlers. I mean, off the sure. top of my head, I think of a guy like Dennis Lilly. I don't think he ever really had much success on the subcontinent. James Anderson. Uh, those sort of guys really struggled, and uh, sure. and yet Dale Stane was was still a potent strike bowler over there, mostly due to his mastery of of reverse skill. So that's another massive feather in his cap. Just before we move on, I, I do need. I mean, if I if I think of how fortunate we've been since uh, readmission in '94 to have had the likes of Alan Donald and Dale Stane within those sort of two immediate generations post '94, a lot of comp. I mean. Uh, Certainly to watch them, the, 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 that vision of watching them come into bowl, the crowd behind them in full tilt, the Wanderers or some, one of those great venues. The comparison between Dale as a fast bowler and Alan as a fast bowler, two of the very best that we've ever produced. Any, any sort of thoughts on the comparison of the two? Cool. It's, 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 a, you know, it's a tough call between the two of them. Um, uh, you know, Alan Donald, perhaps people have forgotten uh, how, how great a fast bowler he Magnificent. <laughs> um, you know, Magnificent. and he only started playing test cricket uh, a little bit later on in his career due to isolation. But you know, you know, you look at his record in in seventy two test matches, he took three hundred and thirty wickets and an average of twenty two, uh, which is a phenomenal, good, eh? <laughs> phenomenal record. I mean, three hundred and thirty wickets at twenty two is is absolutely world class and I think most most people overseas would happily put Donald in, in the sort of pantheon of, of the greatest fast bowlers who have played the game. Dale has a has a very similar average, twenty two point six four. Obviously uh, he's played uh, sixteen more test matches and has got you know over four hundred wickets so that helps him a bit there. But uh, yeah Donald's average just a little bit better. We could argue about you know Donald maybe playing in a in a in an era where it was more bowler friendly. But uh, Alan Donald was a tremendous fast bowler. If, if I, I think Dale might just edge ahead of him a little bit, though, just in terms of strike rate and maybe marginally more skillful, especially on the subcontinent. That uh, that skill with, with reversing the ball, which uh, Donald wasn't quite as brilliant a practitioner uh, of those sort of skills as Dale Stane is. Thanks for your reflections there, Ken. I think, you know, you, you've, you've, you've assessed the, both players, exceptional players, in a very uh, fair and uh, fair-minded way. Thank you. If we move on, Hashim Amla, what can we say about the first man to break the 300, a gentleman player who really, wherever he went, won over, initially, I guess, his critics, in terms of his technique. You know, if, having been dropped, he comes back um, as a magnificent player, like truly one of the greats. And, uh, yeah, your reflections on, on the great, great Hashim Amla. Well, just to let's start at the beginning with Hashim Amla, and you know I was fortunate enough to be covering Natal or Dolphins cricket when Hashim first came on the scene, and and I can remember in the sort of mid nineties there was talk about this very very talented uh, young batsman at Durban High School. You know he played his first game for Natal when he was oh I think he was he hadn't even turned seventeen yet, and uh, it was a game against the uh, touring English side, so that's the sort of esteem he was held in. Um, you know, he he was he was playing uh, proper 
full day cricket for, for the Dolphins, straight out of school. And, uh, yeah, sure. I think the thing about his technique, and I think the whole debate around technique is, is changing significantly at the moment, especially in the light of what a guy like Steve Smith is doing at the moment, who is certainly not classical in terms of technique, very unorthodox, um, you know, to, to, to the naked eye, it looks like he's breaking a lot of the rules, but at the time that he's playing the ball, he, he is, he is actually pretty correct just in terms of head still over the ball in line, those sort of things. What happens before, uh, is, is a different story, but still hugely successful. And I think a lot of people are saying now that maybe too much emphasis is put on technique and, and the MCC coaching manual and, uh, things like that. Whereas maybe Bastion should just be told the basics and then to work out the way that works best for them. So yeah, Hashimamla had that, had that pickup, the backlift that, that went towards Gully. And, uh, you know, a lot of old pros didn't like that, said it's gonna, um, it's gonna find him out. And initially when he struggled in international cricket, uh, a lot of people blamed that backlift for that. Uh, he went away and, you know, he didn't really change it much. He, uh, maybe, maybe made it less of a, um, angled backlift. So he changed it slightly at, at the most. But, you know, international cricket is not easy to come into. And his first series was against England and, you know, that, they had a very useful attack. So it's, it's no surprise that it takes a little while for someone to find their feet at, at international level. Uh, but once Hashem did, man, what a batsman he was. Just, uh, so beautifully elegant. Um, truly one of, one of the, one of my favorite batsmen to watch, you know, it's just effortless class and ease and just beautiful strokes. And, uh, just his manner at the crease was always so composed and calm. And, uh, you know, on, on his day, he could really take an attack to pieces. And I, and I think back to, um, the game in, in Australia when, uh, you know, after first innings, the scores were, were pretty level. And, uh, he and Graham Smith added, you know, nearly 200 runs in a session. Uh, at the end of, I think it was the third day, uh, which really knocked the stuffing out of Australia and, uh, you know, set up a, a series win for South Africa. I think I'm like got 196, uh, in that game. You know, beyond the batsman, also just a better quality person you could not have to meet. Just the most fantastic person. Just a great human being, Hashim Amla. Firstly, I'm glad he's called it a day because you know, having having seen this batsman through his career and, and loved his batting for so long, the last 18 months or so have actually been quite difficult to watch. You know, yeah. to see one of the giants of the game start to struggle against, you know, some, some pretty mediocre bowlers at times. It was heartbreaking. So happy that happy that Hashim Amner has called it a day. You know, his, his legacy is, is untarnished. Definitely one of the greatest batsmen South Africa has produced and... You know, one of the best the world has seen, certainly of the modern era. We certainly can't uh, leave Hashim without talking about that amazing couple of days at the Oval uh, and when he scored his triple century. We, others had been close, A.B. de Villiers, Gary Kirsten, Darrell Cullinan, all close but never quite uh, making that trip. A thought on that, that magnificent day or days at the Oval where he really, as you say, took England to town and... Uh, helped secure a very famous uh, victory there at the Oval. 
Well, that uh, that innings really marked out the other great attribute of Umla, which which was his tremendous powers of concentration. You know, he was a guy who could go big. He could just stay at the crease for a whole day and just really looked as if he was having a net. Yeah, very difficult to get Hashim Umla flustered. And, uh, yeah, tremendous powers of concentration and a real proper test batsman, old Umla, yeah. And, and that innings was just wonderful. It was, a, you know, fantastic for South Africa to finally joined the, the Triple Centurion Club. And uh, again, again, against a very handy attack. I mean, England were, were ranked world number one at the time. So uh, that was a hell of an innings. Well, well, one thing we, we'll touch on the last time that, in, uh, that South Africa were in India, were they were actually there under Hashim's captaincy. And captaincy never seemed to sit quite well um, with Hashim as the leader. His leadership seemed to come in the way he conducted himself and the way he performed. Uh, but the actual leadership of the team never quite seemed to fit. Any thoughts on that, Ken? You know, when, when Hashim was first appointed captain of Natal uh, with the Dolphins, um, it just seemed an obvious thing. You know, he, he captained all the way through junior levels and uh, was acknowledged as a great leader, obviously highly respected. But, uh, you know, he actually, he actually struggled captaining the Dolphins and gave that up after a year or so because he just felt he wasn't spending enough time on his batting. You know, they had other leaders there, guys like Dale Benkenstein, um, who were more natural, sort of, more, you know, could, could handle the responsibilities of the job better. In terms of the Proteus, uh, again, it was a, a kind of time of transition after Graham Smith. And I think Hashim kind of felt that it was his responsibility as a, as a senior player, that uh, there weren't too many other options. So being the great team man he was, he, he, he took on the range. Took one Took one for the team, yeah? Absolutely, yeah. yeah. And I think after a while again, it, it, it just became too much for him. You know, captains have a lot of off-field responsibilities, media conferences, meetings with the umpires, match referees, all those sort of things. And uh, I think Hashim just felt he wasn't spending enough time on his batting. So, uh, you know, credit to him, first of all, for putting the team first, taking on the captaincy, but then even more so for, for being man enough to say, listen, it's not working out for me. Uh, I'd like to step down because, you know, that, that, that takes a lot of courage, you know, and, and it's... For sure, know, for sure. It, it can be a blow to the ego because you, you're basically admitting that you haven't succeeded as captain. But I think that's, that was a measure of the man, that, you know, he, he recognized where his strengths were and he, he played to those strengths in every other way uh, of his game. A absolutely, yeah. Just uh, a man with very little ego, actually. Can we talk about... The third of these players who have called time, who I would argue didn't meet the uh, expectation and the talent that was there, is J.P. Dumini. Fantastic, uh, fantastic skilled all-round cricketer, uh, fantastic batsman, very pleasant to watch, uh, great fielder, and at times very effective bowler. But I do get the sense that when, when we talk about Dale and Hashim, we talk about the best of the bunch. And JP could have been one of them. And I suspect when we look back, he will be there as a, a good cricketer, but not up there with the pantheon of greats that we've seen since uh, 1994 and before. No, for sure, yeah. A, a, you know, a very, very good cricketer, JP Dumini. And just in terms of talent, just a, an amazing talent. And, and I think you're quite right. He never quite seemed to fulfill that talent. You know, from 
from the time he scored that unbelievable 166 in Australia in his, in his debut series. I remember that very well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, in Melbourne in 2008-9, she set up the series win. You know, it just looked that here was a batsman who was going to be one of the greats. He never quite uh, seemed to kick on from there, unfortunately. Uh, look, he did, he did better in white ball cricket. He was a very, very good white ball cricketer for South Africa, but Certainly, at, at, at test level, you just feel he never quite became the player he he, he should have become. And you know, an average of thirty-two in uh, forty-six tests, just six hundred. Yeah. So, sort of speaks to a guy who who had an immense talent, but just didn't quite fulfil it. That Mark Nevis, uh, you beauty, you superstar, yeah. when he hit that, that hundred, first hundred, that, and, and I mean the circumstance that he came into the side, if I recall correctly, was when Ashwell Prince had uh, gotten injured uh, in that big, big series down under, and he came in huge expectation, and boy did he perform. Yeah, that's right. Ashwell Ashwell Prince broke a thumb or a, or a finger or something, and uh, you know, Dumini just looked so good at the crease. That's the thing. I mean, he's, he's certainly one of the most elegant batsmen we've had. You know, when a guy like him, a left-hander, just stroking the ball through the covers <laughs> uh, so effortlessly, getting a big hundred. Yeah, it, it's difficult not to rave about the guy, and and difficult not to expect that. You know, he has a guy who's really going to dominate attacks for a long time. King, the fourth of our four players that we say goodbye to, the journeyman, the fantastic, the enigma, the most passionate, arguably, pro-tier to pulled on the jumper, uh, Imran Tahir. What a player, what an influential player. He, he arrived, he worked his way uh, into the uh, becoming uh, eligible for playing for the pro-tiers and served with an absolutely fantastic um uh, a career. Obviously, unfortunately, players like Paul Harris, who had been the incumbent up until that point, sort of made way for, um, for, for Imran. But your thoughts on uh, on Imran's contribution to, to South African ODI cricket? Immense. That's, that's the only way to put it. I mean, he, in a way, he dragged South Africa's uh, white ball cricket into the modern era. You know, we, we were always pretty reluctant to, to trust spinners. Um, and especially spinners as an attacking weapon. And, uh, you know, he really, from the time he, he debuted at the 2011 World Cup, uh, and quickly became the kingpin of that bowling attack. So, you know, the, the whole strategy sort of revolved around him in the middle overs. South Africa enjoyed tremendous success uh, from the time Tahir came into the team. I know we didn't win any World Cups, but our, our sort of overall winning percentages in one day cricket, we were right up there with the best. We were ranked number one in the world at, at stages. So, uh, yeah, Tahir was just a world-class bowler when it came to white ball cricket. And, and teams eventually just decided that, you know, they couldn't take risks against him. Uh, so he used to just shut teams down in those middle overs, which meant they had to then take risks, risks against other bowlers. So he helped the other bowlers take wickets. Even, even without batsmen taking risks, Tahir just seemed to have that knack of always picking up one or two wickets in, in those middle overs. So really a, a crucial player for South Africa. And, and fortunately, he will still be available uh, for the World T20 uh, in 2021. Uh, so that's good news. So we will still uh, see a little bit more of, of, as you said, just the most passionate figure <laughs> to ever have played for South Africa. Just that that exuberance, that, that just joy of, of playing international cricket, which which one can understand because you know you use the word journeyman and 
he was for the first 10 years of his career, just about. For you know, sure, yeah. And then coming coming from Pakistan, playing uh, playing a lot in England for clubs and and the odd county gigs. It's only when he met a South African woman really that uh, he he settled down in South Africa, and uh, even then it took him a while to to make his breakthrough. But uh, yeah, once once he got his chance, he was unstoppable. Well, I'm certainly going to I'm certainly going to miss uh, the, <laughs> the the wicket take. And the celebrations that come with uh, his performances. I know he's been gone from the test uh, arena for a while, but now from the ODIs. You're quite right. It's good to, to think that we'll still have uh, him potentially available for squad selection come the, the T20. That'll certainly, Ken, help me here. He would be the, become the uh, oldest pro tier to have played, would he? If that's the case, he would be about 42 by then. Yeah, I can't, I can't think of anyone since Omar Henry back in uh, you know 1992. World Cup when we returned to international action, uh, it would have been over 40 when they played, yeah. So. Sure. Certainly the oldest so, and so might. I was going to say, I mean, Pat Simcox, I don't think he ever hit 40 by the time he uh, finished his career. There was, a, there was another player who comes to mind who was towards the end of his career when he was still playing good cricket for pro years. Yeah, I don't, I don't think Pat continued beyond, beyond 40, though. Ken, well, thank you. There we have summarised over the last 30 minutes the careers of four fantastic uh, players for the Proteas, players that we're going to miss. Uh, hopefully you've each got your own uh, memory of them and what they were able to, to contribute, not only to the uh, series wins and uh, wins home and away, but also just those individual moments of brilliance which each of us would remember so well. They're going to leave a big hole. Proteas are certainly now going into a time of transition and uh, hopefully the, the young guys, the young talents who will fill their spots uh, can really uh, make those places their own. Ken, moving on. The Proteas are about to take on the mighty India in their own backyard. We talked about it in our first episode. We've been alluding to it in the uh, reflecting on the players that are not going to be available uh, going there. We are also seeing for the first time the Proteas involved in the ICC. Uh, World Test Championship. Now, for the benefit of our listeners who may not have been um, on the ball in terms of how this whole thing is going to work, um, there is obviously point scoring, there's a league system, and ultimately, if I understand correctly, they end up in Lords uh, in two years' time to play a final between the two top uh, teams. If I also understand correctly, this is the, 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 the third time that the ICC has tried to launch and finally got it off the ground. So, yeah, your your reflection on and your understanding of the way that this Test Championship is going to uh, going to unfold and how it's going to impact on the Proteas as they head to India. Yes, yeah, it's, it's long overdue to you know finally put, to give some context to Test cricket. I I know the the number one ranking and the mace that they've handed out every April has obviously been quite sought after by teams and. Sure. And has been an, an important motivation for sides, you know, it comes with a lot of prize money as well. The problem with that is that there's only one team at times who's really involved in it. You know, one or two teams can challenge for first place and, and the rest aren't really playing for much. So the good thing about the World Test Championship is that you now have a proper league with points uh, that will come to a final. As you say correctly, that'll be at Lords. So basically how it works is that there are six series per team uh, between now and that final. And for every series, there are 120 points on offer. Some series are only two tests, some are five tests. For instance, now when, when we go to India, we only play three tests. The Ashes are five tests. 
So obviously right. they have to balance this up, which is why they've said that there are 120 points available per series. So if you play a two-test series and you win the series, you will then get you get 60 points. Right. You get 30, 30 for a tie and 20 for a draw. Right. So in other words, every test adds up to 60 points in a two-test series. Right. Every series adds up to 120 points. So therefore, like now in India, where we're playing three tests, each test is worth 40 points. If you win the test, you get 40. If you if the test is tied, you get 20. Uh, if it's a draw, 13 points. And that makes sense. Understood. Yeah. Yeah. So now, for instance, in the Ashes, uh, for every win that Australia or England uh, get, they get 24 points. So that just balances it out. So, you know, teams that play a lot of two-test, three-test series aren't discriminated against on the lock. If teams finish level on points at the end of it, then first tiebreakers, whoever's won the most series, that if that's still equal, then they just go to a calculation of runs per wicket lost divided by runs per wicket taken, and whoever's got the best sort of ratio that comes out of that will be ranked higher. Cricket has learned its lesson since the World Cup, where <laughs> obviously no one, no one expects to have a, you know, a tired game, a tired super over. And, uh, they're getting their tiebreakers so in place. So, Ken, as you say, you know, this thing is long overdue. Third, third time lucky, we hope. And, I mean, this is important, right? I mean, this is, is something that, we, that cricket has been asking for a long time. But, uh, you know, in the test, some would argue the traditionalists is that leave test matches alone. They work very well. Uh, at the same time, we're saying, how do you make it more um, competitive, more inclusive as a game and a, and, a, and a code and keep the interest going for a period of time? So do you think it's going to achieve that? Yeah, I, I I think there will be a lot of interest and motivation in in making the final, you know, to to being the official World Test champions of the world. You know, it, it's sure you can have the number one ranking year by year, but uh, you know, to, to just look at ODI cricket, where I think people remember who won the World Cup way more than who was ranked number one the year before or two years before. So to have a final and a and a big trophy mm-hmm. at the end of it just makes it more important, you know, puts puts more at stake. We're on our way to the subcontinent to take on India. The team is a very, very much changed team from that which we saw uh, a few years ago when the South Africans went down 3-0 in a four-test match series in 2015-16. There, there are six guys who, who are going yeah. back we were on that tour, as you say, Faf, Dupasi, Temba Bavuma, Dean Elgo, Vernon Philander, Dane Peaton, and Kathita Rabada. Just to run through the 10 guys who, who we had on that tour who aren't there anymore. And, and this will just paint a picture of, of what sort of turnover there has been in terms of players in South African cricket over the last few years. So the 10 guys who are on that tour who won't be there this year are A.B. de Villiers, Pasha Mamla, J.P. Dumini, Simon Harmer, Stian van Sale, Mornay Morkel, Dane Villas, Carl Abbott, Imran Tahir, and Dale Stane. So, yeah, in, in, in some cases you would say, okay, well, well the players who are going in now are, are, are a little bit better than the players that they're replacing. You know, we, we now have a guy like Keshav Maharaj as our main sure. spinner. Very well Quinton, established. Yeah, mm. Quinton de Kock uh, wasn't on the previous tour, but will be on this one. Lungi and Gidi form part of the pace attack, but uh, it is certainly very much a, a Proteus team in transition, no doubt about it. Let's hear from the current T20 batting coach for the Proteus, Lance Zulu-Klusner, 
and his thoughts on what the proteas can expect and more more importantly the expectations on the proteas going into that three t20 match series in india uh, i'm not into saying oh we we're young and we're rebuilding and we're this and we're that i mean national teams aren't finishing schools mm. you know you you come and we need to win games um and you know the public demands that as well you know concert i, I just hate we, we're learning and we're developing and give us a chance and no i think we need to hit the hit the ground running there's, mm. there's quality there um and i don't see much point in hiding behind oh well you know we, we we've got gaps to fill and you know we've got we're learning and we're developing and we're growing and uh, i think that's just an excuse to to fail so mm. um, I, I think there's no reason yeah we're going to play against good teams and you know but you know, it's fine to lose. It's the way you lose. Right. You know, um, and I think the way we've been losing hasn't been, has probably hasn't been great. You know, it's, it's fine to get beaten by a decent team on on any given day, but just it's just the way that that we lose um, hasn't been great. And it, and you know, for me, it's, I've been watching the same TV you guys have been watching. Right. I haven't been on the inside. Mm. What we see is three T20s that are a prelude to the Test series. Uh, the first T20 on the 15th of September, the second on the 18th, and the third uh, on the 22nd of September. So very quickly, bang, 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 three T20s, and then we're into the serious stuff, which begins on the 2nd of October. Well, it's interesting that, that all three venues, Visakhapatnam, Pune, and Ranchi, have only hosted one test before in their history. Uh, so South Africa will be playing the second game at, at each of those venues. They have been used for ODI cricket and the players are familiar with them, yeah, in terms of IPL and that. Visakhapatnam, first of all, not great news for South Africa in terms of the one test that was played there. Uh, Ravi Chandran Ashwin took something like 12 wickets in the match against England and it, it was one of those classic sort of Indi subcontinental test matches where India won the toss, batted got 400 and, and and the scores just got lower and lower from there. Uh, so that looks like a fairly typical uh, subcontinent venue. Uh, Pune, similarly, uh, the only other test played there was uh, India against Australia. Stephen O'Keefe, a name that uh, not everyone will know, a uh, left-arm spinner who probably played less than 10 test matches for Australia, uh, but he took 12 wickets in that game as uh, Australia gave India quite a hiding. So again, it, it looks like that's a very spin-friendly uh, venue as well. Ronchi, the, the third test venue, the only other test played there was also in that series between India and Australia, and uh, that was a, a very high-scoring draw. If conditions stay the same, uh, we can expect two turners in Visakhapatnam and Pune, and uh, a good batting pitch in Ronchi, but things can change, obviously. Here we hear from Quinton de Kock on his thoughts about the pitches, what to expect. Obviously, his time and effort with the IPL will stand him in very good stead of understanding what the pro tiers can expect in terms of the pitches that await them. It's a little bit unexpected what we're going to get, especially after the last tour. Um, not too sure if they're going to prepare similar wickets or prepare a little bit better wickets. Um, but uh, what, we, what we are going to do is we make sure we prepare for the worst. I think uh, last time the guys were there, they didn't really expect uh, that, that those sort of surfaces. Um, and I think this time around, we I think we got a bit of a head start about that. So we'll keep our eyes open and we'll make sure our preparation 
um, it goes well and make sure we a little bit better than last time. I think they they should, in saying that with this, I think they should prepare a, a better better wickets now that they they're probably backing they have a lot more backing in their uh, fast bowling attack. Um, so I think I think it should be a competitive competitive wickets out there um, for us. Um, but like I said, we're a little bit unexpected what we're going to get. We could get there and they end up playing three or four spinners and, or you know, or playing all their seamers. Uh, you never know what's going to happen. So uh, we'll see what happens when we get there and make sure the preparation is good. If we think back to the last time we were there, Ken, we were absolutely obliterated. Uh, and in fact, it was a four-test four match series. Uh, India won 3-0. Uh, the fourth of the test matches were, were basically washed out. I think it was four days of <laughs> continuous rain. That probably saved us from a, a, an absolute whitewash. Um, you've already mentioned probably our biggest threat. You've already mentioned uh, the uh, you've already mentioned uh, Ravi Ashwin, who in that series, if you recall, took 31 wickets uh, in, a, in that in that curtailed series. Are we going to see an absolute trial by spin? Are we better than we were? Uh, last time, uh, have we improved our technique? Uh, the, the, the A series that we've seen, the one day is at the moment, wouldn't suggest we've learned too much. Your thoughts? Yeah, th I think the, the first thing to note is, is on the Indian side that since that tour in, in November, December 2015, India have actually developed a very potent pace attack, arguably the best pace attack in the world now. The arrival of a guy called like Jasper Bumrah, who is up there, you know, in the debate over the, who is the world's best fast bowler at the moment. Mohammed mm -hmm. Sami, uh, Ishan Sharma, Bhuvneshwar Kumar, they have now got a pace attack that can compete with, with any side. There has been some speculation that pitches might be a little bit better because they've got these uh, powerful pace bowlers. To be fair, on that previous tour, the, the pitches were shocking. You know, they were barely, uh, barely test standard. You know, it, it, it was all, it was payback basically for the previous time India had come to South Africa and uh, had to play, had to play on green tops. Next up, let's hear from Kahisa Rabada on his reflections on that maiden test tour for him in India in 2015-16. Here he's reflecting on that tour. Previous tour were very successful. We won the T20 series. And we won the, the one-day series. The test series was a bit shambles, but I mean, it's not an excuse, but those wickets were just, they were just terrible. If I could give an example, the first test match, it was 200 v 200, first innings. If we, if we batted first, it would, it's a different ball game, because we, we ended up having to chase the game. But if we are batting first, if, the, if we would just win the toss, it's a whole different ball game. We give India a scare in the first test. Second test, they prepare a better wicket. Yeah. Ultimately, it shows we lost 4-0. We got uh, hammered. Um, but it's just really interesting, really. <laughs> I mean, it's like our recent tour to Sri Lanka. <laughs> it's just like the, we're confused. <laughs> and, I mean, rightly so. It's very tricky conditions. Very tricky conditions. Um, so there's been, there's a whole lot of talks about how to approach the spin. Um, <laughs> yeah, we'll see how we go. Um, 
there's a lot there's a lot what helps is that there's guys who've played there from the Sri Lanka tour mm. so I guess what you can do from now is use what you know, what worked in Sri Lanka or what didn't work and at least have a base uh, because when you go there for your first time it's I mean it's it's very it's weird mm. you don't know what to do if you have a look at how Faf played he knew what he wanted to do he kept scoring 40s uh, you know, he, he got a couple of 50s he got starts and he had an approach you could see his approach you know he's played there he knows the subcontinent so with our guys now coming up uh, at least they have an idea and we hopefully we can yeah, we can execute so it's a, again it's another challenge this is why I, I, I have a problem with home teams really preparing pitches that are not good pitches that are just blatantly biased towards um, the home team, you know, let, let's, because it just becomes a race to the bottom, you know, it's it's like a, a arms yeah. race, that the next time you tour the, the other country, they prepare even worse pitches, and it, the cricket just gets worse and worse, so not that South Africa did themselves any favour with the pitches when India were here uh, a couple of summers ago, because again, they were not pretty good batting tracks, they gave the seamers probably too much assistance. But, uh, you know, let, let's hope that India, with those fast bowlers they have, uh, won't prepare pitches that are, you know, they were crumbling on day one. It was a, and basically no yeah, one prepared yeah. pitches, not even India. I mean, the only guy, the only Indian who averaged over 40 in that series was Adinkya Rahani, and uh, he scored 200s in the last test. So you can imagine what his average was like before that. In the whole series... Four half centuries scored by Indian batsmen. So that includes Virat Kohli and, and those guys. So that just tells you how hard batting was. And, um, you know, it, it was totally uh, biased towards spin. Ravi Jajeda, Ravi Chandran Ashwin, and, and Amit Mishra, the three spinners, took 61 out of the 69 wickets to take. <laughs> so, <laughs> so that just tells you. It tells you everything you need to know. Yeah, I mean, A.B. A- a- de Villiers was the only South African to average more than 30. And uh, he scored two half centuries in the in the series. The next highest score by a South African was Hashimamna's 43. So it really was uh, a, a, an awful tour for the batsmen. Let's hope conditions are a little bit better. Proteas are preparing for the worst. They did admit that they were caught a little bit by surprise going over there and, and conditions being as, as bad as they were. So they're, they're preparing for the worst this time, but uh, hoping for pitches that are a little bit... Um, fairer. In our last episode, we talked a lot about Enoch Enkwe and what we could expect as him as the new interim team director. In this next clip, we hear from him in terms of the Proteas' approach to this tour. The most important thing is just to create, you know, have clarity in terms of our approach and back it 100%. Um, we, can't, we can't find ourselves in a very confusing space um, that, you know, do we, do we, you know, if we're going to attack, how do we attack? How do you guys also understand their own game? Um, that's going to be important. And the fact that guys guys are hurting, you know, it's, it's never a healthy result, uh, what has happened in the past, especially in the subcontinent. But um, there's a strong sense of guys want, want to turn it around because the fact, the reality is that in this cycle now, between now and 2023, there's, you know, there's going to be a lot of cricket in the subcontinent. Um, I know it's, it's a lot more to do with white ball cricket, but... Red Bull cricket, there's, there's a lot at stake with Test Championship and T20 World Cups and 50 over World Cups, so there's so much more to play for and and, 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 and the squad is really keen to, to turn things around. 
Um, we yes, we will use the positives from the past experience, um, but also I mean the Indian team, you know they're in a slight transition phase. You can you've seen some of the new faces now against West Indies, so we'll see. I mean at the end of the day we'll see what they prepare, uh, but we gotta ensure that we're well prepared no matter what conditions we play under. Yeah. You know South Africa haven't played in the in the three test venues that you guys are going to be at before. What, what, what do you make of those venues? What are you expecting condition-wise? Yeah, obviously, I mean, you know, from from my from my coaching experience, you always try and prepare worst case scenario and how you're gonna deal with that. So we we, we are expecting spinning conditions, um, but if, if 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 it doesn't spin, um, then we need to go back to how we normally play, and um, so that's that's gonna be important that you know, or like I said, all round, you know, we well prepared for whatever conditions we get confronted with. Yes, those those areas, I mean. <laughs> It's it's um we've never played there, but um, a lot of guys have played IPL cricket. Um, uh, that experience and uh, the type of information that we've been receiving from from our performance analyst uh, Prasanna, I mean it's 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 so key in in helping us well in advance to 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 prepare for whatever we're gonna be getting. Um, and and the fact that some of the A team guys. Um, uh, that will be involved in their test series. You know, they they obviously they're out there now playing. They're going to be playing 40 uh, for the, the 40 series against the Indian A team. So that will also give them some sort of uh, ground to to work from. Um, but but again, with the new way going forward, it's going to be um, whatever condition we get confronted with. You know, let's let's be the better team. Let's let's ensure that we find a way and, and make it work in whatever situation we find ourselves in. So, so we look forward to the challenge and that's something we're not going to back down from. Uh, from. We're going to ensure that we, we play our best cricket to put ourselves in a winning position. I mean, Ken, if, if, if we move away from the, the, the pitch debate, which I guess will always be there, and, uh, and, and what we can expect, what do you think for, would be a, a fair way of assessing the pro tiers? You've, you've already alluded to the fact that this is a team in transition. So what is that, if we're looking at a scorecard of, say, three or four metrics of what are we looking for? Let's assume we don't win. I know that I don't want to sound defeatist, but let's assume that you know, a draw would be a really good, a drawn series would be a very good outcome. What are the things that we should be looking for in terms of that scorecard? Yeah, you know, the, the Proteas are striving to be the first South African team to win in India since 1999-2000. So, I mean, we've had some great test teams since then. Uh, you know, including teams Absolutely. that were the best in the world, and they still haven't managed to win in India. So, yeah, a, a drawn series, I think, would be an incredible result, uh, a phenomenal result. Just in terms of what I would have to see, well, I would have to see an improvement in our batting, uh, specifically against against spin bowling, specifically on, on turning tracks. You know, South Africa has had a, a bit of a reputation of struggling against spin, uh, since our return from isolation, but from the sort of mid 2000s onwards, we actually started playing spin really well, and uh, that's why we could win on the subcontinent. But uh, it just seems to be showing signs again now of dropping off. That uh, our new crop of batsmen uh, really seem to be struggling again against spin. So hopefully our batsmen can at least be competitive against uh, those spin bowlers and 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 not be walkovers. That to me is is important. I would like to see that the guys who are probably going to replace Sasha Mumler and Dale Stane, so you look at a guy like Tinas De Bruyne, 
Uh, I would like to see him really consolidate his place in the test team. He's been in and out over the last couple of years. I'd like to see him nail down his place. Uh, I'd like to see Aidan Markham make runs on the subcontinent because uh, he has really struggled against them uh, previously. He's, he's obviously a class player and, and a major figure in our pants going forward. And, you know, most of international cricket these days is played on the subcontinent. So it's very important that, that he conquers whatever whatever demons he might have over there. Replacement for Dale Stein, you, you're probably looking at a guy like Lungi and Gigi. Three tests, there could be a lot of bowling from, for him in tough conditions. Uh, I hope yeah. that his conditioning is, is a lot better and, uh, you know, that, that he can stay injury-free. That's a, that's a big thing. Big thing to look at our, our spin backup to Keshav Maharaj. Look, I would like to see Maharaj uh, compete up there with the Ashwins, the Jadajas, and that show that he is in that league. And, uh, you know, maybe the presence of him will make India think twice about, you know, making absolute Bunsen burners for the pitchers. But uh, it'll be interesting sure. to see how Dane Pete goes, uh, Senior and Mutasami, uh, just to just to reassure us that we do have a bit of backup uh, to Maharaj in, in, in terms of spin. Timber Bavuma, another guy who, you know, he's got the vice captaincy now. Uh, I would like to see him really nail down his place on the side, make a hundred, make it clear that there are no question marks uh, over his selection in that team. And uh, one more I would like to see also is Kikita uh, Rabada, who uh, you know went to the World Cup, rated as, as the world's best fast bowler, and uh, was really overshadowed and, and overtaken by a lot of other fast bowlers at that tournament. And, and I would really like to see KG come back with a bang and, and really put himself back into that, that debate, you know, show that he's up there with the Pat Cummins, with the Boomers, uh, with the Jofra Archers of the world. I, th- I think you, I think that's a really fair assessment framework, Ken. We'll certainly come back to that in future episodes and see how how each of those sort of aspects are playing themselves out. You talked about conditioning. Um, the one player who, over the past few seasons, has also I think we've all torn our hair out about uh, or what little hair we have has been Vernon Philander. Now Vernon gets to go back. Uh, as I say, he was ruled ruled out of the three of those four Test matches uh, the last time. Uh, we've seen him in and out of test uh, test series with this fitness inju- uh, fit- fitness aspects. I've always thought that this is a, the type of bowler who would be very effective in the subcontinent uh, conditions. Do you think this, this is also an important and potentially one of the the, the last uh, hurrahs, if you like, for Vernon on uh, in touring the subcontinent with South Africa? Yeah, Vernon. You know, he's one of the senior players now. He's he's one of the experienced guys, uh, one of the veterans, so it's great that he can still be part of the attack. You know, he and KG can can lead the attack now, provide the experience, and uh, I hope Vernon keeps playing for a good couple of years, you know, because uh, he obviously still has a lot to offer. saw him the other day, he's looking good, he's uh, looking lean and mean, and uh, yeah, I, I agree, I, I think he definitely, you know, people always associate Vernon with seaming the ball around on, on green pitches and that. But uh, I think he has a big role to play in the subcontinent just in terms of bowling very straight lines, wicket to wicket, uh, wicket keeper standing up. Even on those dry pitches, he can get a bit of nibble, he can get the ball to misbehave a bit and uh, do a really good holding role uh, for the attack. So let's hope he's fit for all three test matches. You know, I, I think he could play a crucial role in the attack and also just in terms of balancing the side because... There's been a lot of talk about South Africa playing two spinners. Uh, I think it's essential. 
Uh, we we learned that lesson the hard way in Sri Lanka on the last tour there last year, uh, where we only played one spinner and and it it, it was hopeless. You know, Keshav Maharaj had to bowl sixty overs or something, um, and the seamers were 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 ineffective. So hopefully we've learned a lesson of playing two spinners. But then the problem with that comes in in it making the tail a bit longer. Look, Dane Pete can bat. He he got a first class hundred last year in in the in the four day series, so he's no mug with the bat. Senior Mutasami yeah. is almost a batting all rounder, you know, so so he can bat. But I think Philander at seven would allow you to play two spinners, one of them at eight and, and obviously Keshav Maharaj at nine, and then you've got Ngidi and Rabada. So that gives you three fast bowlers and two spinners, which is a, a pretty well-balanced attack for all those conditions. Let's hope it's enough, hey, Ken. Yeah, I, I just hope we're competitive. I really, you know, it, it's a, a daunting tour at the best of times. It's been a tough time for South African cricket this year. Uh, there's so many changes around. There's a, a very inexperienced coach uh, at the helm. So, you know, let's hope that we're competitive, uh, that we don't get hammered like we did in the last tour, uh, because that could really set us back and, and set some careers back a long way as well. Ken, thanks so much for your thoughts on that and for your reflections on, A, the past players, and B, the up, upcoming tour. There's lots for us to, to consider, lots for us to think about for future episodes. Cheers. Thank you. It's been great chatting, uh, a pleasure. And, uh, yeah, let's, let's hope for... Some really good competitive cricket in in India. Cheers for now. All the best, Ken. Cheers.